value-based delivery and payment models align incentives among patients, they align incentives among providers, and they align incentives among payers for better outcomes at less cost than the fee-for-service. You're listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation with Carrie Nixon and Rebecca Gwilt, a podcast for novel and disruptive healthcare business leaders seeking to transform how we receive and experience healthcare. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest episode of Decoding Healthcare Innovation. Uh, Carrie and I are back together now after several episodes apart. I'm so glad uh, to rejoin you, Carrie. I know. I'm so excited. Yes. So in our June 30th episode, we started a conversation about um, some really obvious truths, um, obvious to Carrie and I, at least, uh, that our healthcare policy in this country still doesn't really support. Um, that episode, we talked about the, the you know individual preferences for home-based care and a little bit about RPM and the promise of sort of ongoing monitoring of, of patients to keep them well and lower cost. And today, I'm excited to continue that conversation. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about two more obvious truths. One, um, that mental health is a vital aspect of maintaining overall health. Um, And the second is new ways uh, that we're seeing to align incentives between providers and payers, even tech companies to achieve better outcomes and lower health costs. Sort of the obvious truth that our system really isn't built for that kind of alignment yet. Uh, but it's getting there. So I'm looking forward to discussing both of these. Yeah, seems obvious to me for sure. I can't believe it was back in June that we were talking about these things. It seems like yesterday we're, we're in a COVID time warp, I think. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. The two that you mentioned seem very obvious to me. Uh, let's dive in on mental health. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So I have a particular passion for serving clients in this space. Um, we, we both have devoted special energy to this since we started the firm. Uh, you are likely aware, if you are one of our listeners, that there is not only a severe shortage of mental health professionals in the country, just in general, but we're also facing a pretty historic mental health crisis uh, as a result of the pandemic, certainly, but also years and years of, of not, lack of access and I have other theories about sort of, you know, why we're sort of falling apart. Um, but we kind of have a perfect storm right now of increased need for these services and decreased access. And um, that, I think, in the medium term and the long term is going to really affect overall health costs in general. Uh, we know that there's a connection between mental health and physical health. I I looked up quickly before this, the CDC mentions um, diabetes and heart disease and stroke, some of the more expensive physical ailments that our, that our health system is, is trying to address, that those are all exacerbated by mental health issues. Uh, And certainly opioid use disorder has been, has been massive in this country. uh, uh, And that is, is, is significantly taking a toll on people's physical health. So, so then what's the, what's the issue, right? If we all recognize that it's a big problem for us and that, uh, that we need to address it in ways we haven't been able to yet, you know, why, why is there still an access problem? Well, some of it is that insurers have traditionally paid 
bottom of the barrel prices for mental health services. Reimbursement is so low for mental health services that historically a ton of providers have just opted out of insurance altogether. It is the case that if you are uh, contracted with an insurance company, on average, they're paying you less than Medicare rates. Um, so if you're out of network or if you're completely cash pay, your uh, your business is going to be more profitable. And that's a problem we absolutely have to address. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's an equity problem, certainly. But overall, I mean, I'm, I at least know for, for my child, I've been on a waiting list for 10 months, and I'm, you know, I'm able to pay cash pay. So if so if I'm having those kinds of issues, then cost is a is a real problem. Uh, and, and it can be solved by policies that encourage just frankly, like paying what these services are worth. Yeah, that's a real innovation, right? Paying what the services are worth. How how novel. How novel. But that's kind of that's kind of where we are. I mean, you know, this this shortage of mental health uh, professionals has ha- has been, you know, uh, our status quo for quite some time now, right? I think COVID just sort of shined a bright, bright light on it. Um, and you know, the, the upside of that is that we are beginning to see some innovation in how mental health services are reimbursed and provided. Um, and, and, and that's really good news. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I was seeing innovation from the payer side more. I mean, Medicaid has done a pretty good job. And, and recently, the, uh, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, I think that is the CAA, tried to make some changes to encourage uh, more access for mental health services. I wrote a little bit about that in a, in a recent blog, a blog post, but we're actually seeing a ton of innovation um, in, the, uh, in the telehealth space. So companies like BetterHelp and Talkspace have been able to reduce the unit costs of mental health services uh, much more than traditional psychotherapy can. I mean, we're talking about $150 an hour to $40 or $50 an hour for services. Um, In addition, that sort of telehealth mental health model has been able to expand access into the uh, non-urban areas that uh, generally have sort of fewer providers and um, and because private companies are doing this, venture capital investments um, are, are way, way up. We're going to dive into that a little bit more when our friend Russ Glass joins us uh, in, a, up, in an upcoming podcast. Um, Russ is the CEO of Ginger, uh, and I'm super excited to hear his thoughts on this. But, but this is really a bipartisan issue in Congress, um, one of the very, very few. Uh, I think that policymakers could do well to really address the, you know, when they're talking about how expensive the healthcare system is, you know, taking care of people's mental health is, is absolutely a preventative measure that if incentivized could make a real difference. I mean, it's a, it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? We know that chronic uh, disease or chronic conditions and chronic diseases can lead to mental health issues, understandably, right? If, if someone has diabetes and, and they are, you know, having a hard time getting around because, because, you know, they're having uh, their, cause their feet are swollen or they have, you know, sores that's depressing, right? Their lifestyle has changed. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Carrie. You know, the, the other side of course is that if you are uh, struggling with mental health, one of the things that can happen is you're unable to make clear decisions. Think about someone who needs to be very carefully um, monitored on a medication regimen, right? If they are uh, 
uh, oversleeping or undersleeping or, you know, ha- you know they, they're suffering from depression and that's preventing them from good decision making, that's really going to impact their ability to take care of their physical health. Um, so anyway, so uh, that is one thing that I would love to see addressed. And really, it is as simple as reimbursing them, reimburse for the for the value that these services are bringing. You'll have more people entering the profession, so you'll have less sort of uh, a supply issue of the professionals, and you will incentivize providers, even primary care providers, to provide more mental health services. Yeah, and and you know, I I I. I do you want to interest, underscore the innovation around tele mental, mental health services? It is absolutely the case that uh, the access problem is going to have to be addressed by telehealth and the reimbursement has got to follow there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Carrie, let's talk about our favorite thing and that is incentives alignment. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the second obvious truth that we wanted to talk about was uh, really the fact that, you know, uh, value-based delivery and payment models align incentives among patients, they align incentives among providers, and they align incentives among payers for better outcomes at less cost than the fee-for-service system that we've had in place for so long, right? This this should be a no-brainer. When you align incentives among all of the players in an ecosystem, the outcomes are better. We started to make a move towards uh, value-based payment, you know, even before the Affordable Care Act in 2010. You know, the, the thinking initially was, hey, three years from now, we'll have this all nailed down and we'll be in a totally value-based system and fee-for-service will be a, a relic of the past. It has proven much, much, much more difficult to make that shift. Uh, I am somewhat optimistic now because I think we're seeing more of sort of a combined carrot and stick approach to making the shift to value-based care. And this is, you know, this is really important. Uh, but in order for that to happen, we need for our fraud and abuse infrastructure, the regulatory infrastructure that is, you know, so critical uh, and so scary in healthcare uh, to, to change, uh, to keep, you know, to stay in align with that alignment with that shift. So our fraud and abuse infrastructure is totally geared toward a fee-for-service world where we're trying to disincentivize um, uh, you know, the repeat utilization of certain types of medical services. We don't want to incentivize overutilization. Totally understandable. But the way that the fraud and abuse laws are written uh, means that it doesn't take into account that there are some behaviors by by patients that we actually want to incentivize. We want to provide certain services on a regular basis as a means of managing a patient's condition for better outcomes. So, you know, we made progress in sort of a little, in a, in a micro level with uh, some changes to the fraud and abuse laws that, that came into play through uh, a rule that went into effect in January of this year. Uh, talking about value-based enterprises. And, and those changes are positive, but um, you know, I'm not real sure that they go far enough. It, it is not totally obvious as to how, uh, how to implement new arrangements where digital health companies and providers and payers can all benefit. Um, so you know, we need to make it easier still, I think, to create these arrangements. 
Yeah, totally agreed. And and I will just say our firm has been spending months and months talking about this, how to do it right. And it is, it is obvious to me that once, once we figure it out, it is a better way than what exists now. I, I had a call with a client the other day where I was talking about a model that they were interested in and the fact that they could do that if they were part of an ACO and the client almost had like a conniption. The client was like, we don't want anything to do with ACOs that or bundled payment initiatives through CMS. It's so complicated. You know, the, the, the patient attribution is too difficult. You know, it's too hard. Don't even talk to us about that. And I said to them, I I totally get that. I totally get that. Uh, There are, there are, uh, exceptions to the fraud and abuse laws that only apply to ACOs, but this new program, this value-based enterprise program holds promise. And I almost had to talk them off the ledge to even consider a new model, given how complicated CMS has made uh, working around these fraud and abuse rules in the past in a value-based context. Um, we did see, uh, we did see recently, and Carrie, I'd love your thoughts on this, a uh, sort of marketed as a first of its kind value-based arrangement between Prime Therapeutics, which is uh, owned by the Blues, and Pair Therapeutics, which is a developer of um, prescription digital therapeutics. And it sounds a lot like these value-based enterprises, though you know I don't have enough information to, to tell whether that's the case or not. But but Carrie, what do you what do you think about that kind of partnership and and what we're likely to see similar to that in the future? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the non-governmental, the commercial uh, payer sector sort of taking charge and taking taking the lead um, on this front. They are recognizing that, you know, alignment of incentives is important. You can come up with some really interesting arrangements that uh, reward thing, you know, entities like digital health companies, like paratherapeutics, right, for uh, implementing uh, a, a, a prescription digital therapeutic tool that is going to move the needle in this case on substance abuse disorder, right? And if indeed Pear succeeds at this, you know they're they're putting their money where their mouth is, right? They're saying we're we're going to go slightly at risk depending on the outcomes that we achieve with the patients uh, who who have a blues one of the blues plans, right? So. So I think that we're going to see more and more um, private sector entities entering, entering into value-based arrangements like this. And hopefully this is a case where uh, the government will take a look and go, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of how we should do it. That's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, we've had clients that have almost done sort of a capitation model. So digital health clients will go to the blues um, or Cigna or Aetna and they'll say, okay, you know, my digital therapeutic or my platform uh, patient engagement platform, for instance, is really going to move the needle on your chronically ill population. And so if you pay me a a per member per month fee, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to provide this service to these folks and it's going to, uh, you know, and then I get to keep whatever, uh, you know, incremental difference in, in revenue I earn based on reducing, you know, reducing prices. 
uh, or, or reducing costs of care. Um, that is that is the current model outside of these value-based arrangements. But what if what if they could say, okay, here's a set of outcomes that we together are going to drive toward, right? Not just me, digital health companies saying, I think I can do this and let me negotiate a price that gives me some wiggle room. But what if- In a vacuum, right? Yeah, exactly. What if we work together to identify the exact uh, outcome measures we want to impact and we enter into an arrangement together where we mutually decide if we both if we both do what we set out to do, we both win here. That's it's just not permitted under the the current laws outside of um, you know outside of these value based arrangements. And I I'm really bullish on this being sort of uh, a, a great opportunity number one for digital health, but two an absolute incentive alignment. Yeah, the innovation here is really bringing all of the players together to create the right arrangement that works in that particular circumstance for that target population. I don't, I don't think we're really used to doing that in healthcare, right? I think it's, you know, a vendor goes in and says, this is my price for doing this, or, you know, a payer says, well, this is what we're going to pay period. Uh, there's not a lot of bringing all the players to the table and saying, Hey, how can we create the best outcomes for our patients and for all of us? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really the innovation. Um, so before we sign off, I want to let our listeners know that Rebecca and I are going to be at the HLTH conference in Boston, uh, October 17th through the 20th, which is rapidly, rapidly approaching. I think it's actually, uh, we'll be in the midst of, of the HLTH conference, uh, when our next podcast drops. So if you are going to be there, please reach out. We would love to connect with you. I'm sure we'll have some really interesting insights to bring you from the conference. Um, and we're really looking forward to it. That's right. Carrie has her very own avatar, um, which in HLTH world is a big deal. And, um, and we're both on the app. We're learning the app right now. I don't know if, if any of you have been through the clear app. It is a bear. I would start now. <laughs> Just, I haven't started. I need to. Yeah. <laughs> You're start it. Make sure you schedule your make sure you schedule your COVID test 72 hours beforehand. It's a whole rigmarole, but you can find Carrie on the app, um, and certainly um, you can reach out to us uh, on social. And I would also say that we're gonna we're gonna put into the show notes a couple of the kinds of things we're reading. Um, certainly the 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 um, Prime and Pair uh, uh, press release and a little bit more about sort of the, the articles we've read that are relevant to this. And, and I would just say before we close, you know, on the value-based enterprise uh, topic, if you're a digital health company and you believe that your innovation can move the needle and you've got a good relationship with somebody at the payers, just start that conversation. Start the conversation with them. This is going to be on their radar starting now. It's at least on the radar of the blues. And if you ever have a question about what that conversation looks like, um, certainly Carrie and I and our team are, are at the ready. Yep. Sounds good. All right. We'll hope to see some of you at HLTH and we'll talk to you next time. Take care.